How do you deal with the great terror phantom? The question of what will people think? How can we overcome the social anxieties around running and playing in role-playing games? Where do we even begin? Hey, it's Jay, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hey, it's Jay, and I hope that you're doing okay. Thank you for joining us. As many listeners will know, I have a diagnosis for social anxiety. On a surface, it might seem a little odd that a person with anxieties around social interaction would record a podcast and run games for groups of people, both online and face-to-face. Why would a socially anxious person become a teacher? Well, let's begin with this. When I'm in the moment of teaching, gaming or recording, there is no anxiety. The action of beginning and working through the process is how I've learned to manage the anxieties that I experience. That the cure for the fear is to focus on the process and action rather than the outcomes or people's opinions. What will people think? This question is a tangle of unhelpful thinking habits, what therapists sometimes call thought distortions. They are called this because these types of thought distort your experience of reality. I am aware of at least 12 different thought distortions that are particularly unhelpful, but today I want to unpick just those tangled up with the question, what will people think? What will people think is an attempt at prediction. We believe that we can know what is going to happen in the future, but no one knows what is going to happen in the future. And while it might be possible to make some reasonable predictions about phenomena in the physical world, like how fast this cannonball is going to fall and how many seconds it will hit the ground from the top of this particular skyscraper, the reality is that human beings are very unpredictable. Most people, like economists in general, like to believe that people are rational and that human beings will make rational decisions based on evidence. But the truth is that human beings are emotional and that most of the time we make an emotional decision and then use reason to back up our choice. For this reason, we are easily manipulated and for this reason, advertising works. Just one example. What will people think is unknowable. Even if you ask a person what they are thinking, there is no guarantee that they will be honest with you. But worse than that, if you ask most people what they are thinking about something, the chances are that their own thoughts are not clear, even to them. So really, nobody knows anything. And many people don't have much of a clue what they think about most things. We know what we feel about things, but thinking, it seems, is much harder than we realise. But it is even worse. When we ask what will people think, we are also trying to mind read. 
We imagine that we can know what others are thinking, especially about us. And we are very good at doing so based on, well, not much. Humans are capable of forming a theory about the minds of others. It's that thing we do where we observe the other person's movements, expression, words, tone, and a thousand other factors, all within the specific context that we're both in, and then we assume we know what they are thinking. That assumption is largely based on the idea that if I were them, that is what I would be thinking. But you are not them. Sonder is the profound individual realisation that each person you meet is living their own life, that each person has their own world filled with their own personal worries, pains, pleasures, ambitions and routines. The same as yourself in a sense, but also as intricate and as different as could be imagined. Sonder is the idea that there are millions of stories happening all at once around each other, oblivious and contained from one another. So when you are trying to mind-read, Sonder is the reason that you really can't. You are not them. Even though you might feel like you have a connection, even a deep, prolonged connection like the one I have enjoyed with my wife for more than 30 years, the reality is that under all the experiences you share, you really don't know what someone else is thinking. And of course, when you ask, what will people think, you're also making judgments. You are making evaluations about yourself and them, perhaps also the events you are considering as the context, rather than describing what you actually see and have evidence for. The reason that the question, what will people think, or the similar in-the-moment version, what are they thinking, the reason these questions are so dangerous is that they also appear highly useful. But they cause fear. For me, this fear is strong enough that I could call it terror at times, especially when at two in the morning I wake up and begin to speculate about what people might be thinking. I feel the chill of terror in my spine and the weight of it upon my stomach. My chest constricts, my shoulder muscles tense, my head goes down, my mind wanders off to speculate while my body is left paralysed by the sensations of fear. What I need when the terror of imagining I know what other people are thinking is upon me is to dispel the enchantment. To draw on a gaming metaphor, I need to cast the reversed version of cause fear. I need a spell to dispel terror. Or to use a similar gaming analogy, I need to turn the phantom of terror with my holy cross to drive it away. And the secret is to focus on the action, to get into the process, to wake up, to the present moment. Social anxiety kills games. It undermines the relationships needed to connect and to enjoy play. But what is social anxiety? The Centre for Clinical Interventions defines it as, quote, Social anxiety is used to describe feelings of anxiety and fear that occur in response to social situations. Even the most confident of people can get a little anxious before a presentation or when they're meeting new people. But in social anxiety, this distress can be so overwhelming that it feels as though it's difficult to cope. Often, that overwhelming anxiety is experienced when just thinking about the situation or remembering a previous event. You may also have heard the term social phobia used to describe these feelings. 
Do you worry a lot about what other people think or worry that you will do something embarrassing in front of the others? Perhaps you really want other people to like you or you want to do the right thing by others and become really worried that you'll mess it up. You might focus on other people's reactions, wondering how you look or what they are thinking about you. People with social anxiety are often very concerned that other people will think negatively of them and are especially worried about situations where they may be evaluated, criticised or embarrassed. End quote. Most people with social anxiety notice that most of their attention is self-focused. For example, when gaming on Zoom, you might spend a lot of time looking at your own camera view of yourself and focus on how you look, imagining what others might think of you, even listening to how you sound in your headphones. My solution for that one has been at least to turn off the self-view in Zoom, even if it doesn't stop me imagining what I look like. People with social anxiety might also scrutinise their environment for any social threat. For example, you might look around for people who are laughing at or criticising you. A common experience for the average classroom teacher is with teenage students. Ambiguous social feedback such as a frown, yawn, glance at a watch or pauses in conversation could lure your attention during the aforementioned Zoom call. This feedback is then often interpreted as evidence to confirm predictions that you are being judged negatively by others. The general advice when beginning to unpick and challenge social anxiety is to practice two things. When you are alone, practice mindful attention training, such as meditation or focusing on physical sensations, such as what you can see hear, smell or what something tastes like, like popping a bit of chocolate in your mouth and slowly letting it dissolve, or what something feels like to touch. I find that grounding myself by placing my hands on a cold surface and focusing attention on that sensation is a great mental palate cleanser. Daily meditation has been great for me. The other thing is to focus attention on the other person or people in social situations. Rather than a self-focus or a focus on the environment, you focus on the person's actual physical behaviours and their actual words. This is about focusing on the facts of the situation. Instead of judging and evaluating, you focus on describing what you see and hear. What is the evidence? Overall, my solution has been to focus on moving through the task we are doing in the social situation, so in the actual act of teaching or the actual act of being game master in a role play session, and then to observe the actions and words of the other participants. When this goes well, the terror goes away. I'm not saying that I'm very good at doing this yet, although I am far better in teaching mode than I am in gaming mode, but it has been the pathway to improvement. The reason is that focusing on the process brings us firmly into the present moment. And now is where life is happening. What will people think afflicts me as a gamer in two ways? What will people think on the night? And what will people think of my prep? Whether as a player or a GM, although I am more commonly a GM, the problem is around the perception of others about me as we interact and play. Both as a player and a GM, I also worry about what people think of my characters, the concept, the backstory, if required, and how I build them in the rules and my worlds 
and my adventures. This is all made worse by the typically ambiguous social feedback gamers give, especially to the GM. Games are described vaguely as being fine or good. Americans especially use hyperbole such as great game or awesome. But as any teacher knows, such feedback is basically not useful because it's generic. It's not actionable. What can a GM do with great game? other than try to imagine what specific part of the game was great. How can you learn and repeat the process with such ambiguous feedback? But worse than that, all the facial expressions, body language and tone of voice from the players is also ambiguous. And so it goes. The phantom appears. The first thing is to take the vague feedback at face value. Applying Swinburne's principle of testimony, namely that in the absence of special considerations, the experiences of others are probably, as they report them, it's best just to believe that people really did think the game was fine. Now, it's not helpful, but it does allow you to dismiss the ambiguity and accept the gift as it was probably intended. One practice that has served me well in getting people to give more specific feedback has been to award XP by giving every player one XP award that they can give to another player on the condition that they describe the reason for that reward. This obliquely allows me to access some specific examples of things players enjoyed. I can then work towards providing new situations that might afford the opportunity to recreate similar experiences in the future. But I digress. The key to unlocking the social anxiety and moving away from self-focus and environment focus, that is, from either being aware of your feelings and experience or looking for threats in the environment, the key is to focus on the process of running or playing in the game. Before the game, you need to prepare. Usually, you are alone. So, begin with practicing attention. For me, this is meditation. Just a minute or two is enough to bring focus to the moment, this present time. The temptation is to project forward into what the game will look like, feel like, what people will think. But the trick is to come back to now, the present moment, and do the prep. For this, I have a process. Whatever your process is, that's the best thing to focus on. As a player, do I have my character sheet? Is it all ready to play? Do I know and remember all the stuff on my sheet? Reread my character notes? Refresh memory of my character's goals and motivations? Get ready to inhabit the character at the table? This is best done just prior to play if possible. I have begun to realise that as a player, I don't really need to know the rules unless the focus of the game, the particular game style in play, is focused on the rules. For example, playing Pathfinder or D&D 5e, it's useful to know enough of the rules to be able to deploy the specific abilities or powers your characters has on the sheet, maybe the spells, but I don't need more than that. I don't need to be an expert on the rules to be a player. As a GM, I make a list of the players and I work to remember their characters' names. 
I review the character sheets so that I can provide interesting challenges geared to what the player has created. The assumption here is that if a player made a combat-oriented character, for example, they want to fight. The wizard wants to cast their spells. The thief wants to steal things. I review the character's goals. What do they want? I set up challenges, obstacles to those goals. Who or what stops the character or characters from achieving those goals? I place those challenges into the context of the imaginary world. Where will the action be located? I set up the clues. Three clues for every conclusion I want the players to make. Is the diamond in the manor house? Then I need three clues pointing to that location. Scatter those clues through three different places or give them to three different NPCs as information. Whatever works. I describe the NPCs. Who will they be interacting with? Who do I need to create to run this sequence of events? Do I need any stats? I describe the locations. Where will the characters be going? What is the first impression upon arrival? What can they see, hear, smell or feel? What additional information might be available if they investigate further? I try to give every location at least three interesting things for the players to have their characters fiddle with in some way. I check on the rules I might need for these specific scenes. Do I know how to adjudicate the types of situation I am providing? Or at least, am I comfortable winging it? Finally, how do I get the player characters involved? This is something they want, but how do I trigger their desire to go get it? The process focuses me on preparation. It's a discipline. I show up, sit down and do the prep. What will they think? Well, I can't know that. But what do I think? Well, if I think it's a pretty cool adventure seed, then I satisfy myself that this is enough. The bigger challenge is on the night, showing up to play, focusing on what is actually happening during the session. There is no point focusing on threats to your play. Instead, focus on what is actually happening. What can you see and hear? What are they doing? What did they actually say? The thing to realise is that in gaming situations, the best approach typically involves getting absorbed in the conversation, focusing on the other person when they are speaking, and then switching to your own message when you are speaking. It's all about noticing when your attention wanders and bringing it back to the present task. This is not easy to do when you are feeling anxious and it requires regular practice. Devote as much of your attention to the conversation as possible. This is similar to an activity sometimes referred to as active listening, but also includes paying attention to what you see as well as to what you hear. As practice, you may find it helpful to try to recall the details of a conversation, as this is a good marker of task-focused attention. At the table, look at the speaker, tune in to their words, watch their face and body, listen to understand. What are they saying or asking? Don't respond, listen, watch. What can you see? What are the facts? When it's your turn, take time to think. It's okay if that means you delay to think. Focus on what you are saying. Watch for their reaction. Listen when they reply. Rinse and repeat. As player, focus on the GM and each of the other players as they speak and interact. 
What do you notice? Focus your attention on them, on their words and actions. When it's your turn, make the move that seems most likely to fit the situation. In character, act as your character might choose to act. Don't think about it more than a moment or two, avoiding overthink. The great advantage of role-playing games is that we can practice this focused attention in character as someone else and see how it helps us to develop the skill at a much reduced personal risk. As a GM, focus on each player in turn. I recommend a fixed turn order, perhaps one way around the table, because this takes away the need to think about who is next. In combat, most games give you initiative rules, but you don't have to use them. As each player speaks, what do you notice? Focus your attention on them, on their words and actions. If you need to adjudicate, make the best decision you can in the moment and move on. If you need to describe, focus on a couple of different senses and keep it brief. What can the character know with their immediate senses? Allow players to ask clarifying questions because that is part of the fun of playing. Over time, Reflect on the impact of your practice on your anxiety, not only within the game, but also within social interactions more generally. Notice how the quality of your social performance shifts with practice. Overall, be aware of where your attention is focused. Keep it focused on the players and the game. Listen, watch, ask questions, describe, use the rules only as needed. My experience is that when I do this consistently, I find myself deeply immersed in the interaction, deeper into the game and the world of the game. It's liberating and highly enjoyable. Stay present. Stay focused. Observe. Thank you for listening. Game on. As you know, I love to hear questions and comments from listeners. In a moment, a call-in referring to a recent episode. But first, remember that if you have questions or comments, you can call into the show via anchor.fm slash rpgrescue, where you can click on the message button. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Hey, Jason here. Just listen to Roleplay Rescue 1012. No worries on the calls. In fact, you know, there's no need to play my calls. I am just giving you support. But I'm definitely enjoying your episodes. The GW guys weren't wrong about the crossover between skirmish war games and RPGs. And a lot of the games I play in are essentially that. Not every session. We have sessions without combat. But the lineage is definitely obvious. I think the obvious answer is do both. You can, you can play some immersion games and have some games that are, are, are immersion and exploration. And you have other games that are tactical combat. I don't think because you like one, you don't have to like the other. I think there's plenty of room to do both. We're multifaceted creatures and, you know, we have to accept that. Anyway, keep up the great work. I definitely support you and appreciate all that you do. Take care, my friend. First, thank you, Jason, for calling in. I always appreciate it when people do and especially love hearing from you. Jason was, of course, referring to the fact that I'm moving quite a lot of the call-ins to separate episodes and there should be one of those, you know, every now and then. Um, But For now, I'm trying to limit the calls to episodes just a little bit more uh, to make the shows themselves a little sharper. However, on this one, 
I really enjoyed Jason's comment. I think you're absolutely right, dude, that there is nothing to stop us kind of blending the flavour that we want. I don't want to imply by talking about like how skirmish game and a combat-focused game at one extreme and then, you know, other kind of approaches in sort of other elements on that spectrum of play. I actually think that most of us just do blend things together. I think the usefulness of calling out specific kind of approaches is to isolate those types of play and ask you where do you want to fit them into your gaming experience i actually think that what we all tend to do is pick out a few different styles and approaches and kind of mash that together into our sessions and um that's totally appropriate but i also worry sometimes or feel a little bit at times that we are losing touch with our wargaming heritage and it's actually in some ways quite dangerous to do so because you can make all sorts of assumptions about what role-playing games are while absolutely forgetting their roots i think there's richness to be found back in the 70s and the 80s and certainly in the 90s too you know we can actually find really good tools that we can bring to use at the table not least of which you know the original gaming tools location crawls hex crawls the combat itself as a gaming structure and of course mystery gaming anyway thank you very much jason and i hope that you will keep listening and to all the listeners, don't forget that you know this show is a community-based thing. I am getting out of bed every morning to try and create a community discovery in which we can all feel accepted. And you know it really is better when we all chip in. So thank you. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you soon. Time for the outro. And that's it for this week. Big thank you once again for showing up and listening. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to call into the show via anchor.fm slash rpgrescue and you can click on the message button to leave your one-minute message. I'd also like to say a big thank you to John from Tale of the Manticore for all of the theme music and stingers. Thank you, John. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.